Sipany is a refreshing rye whiskey and honey-based canned cocktail that is environmentally conscious from production to consumption. Sipany is a small family company based in New York City that has identified honeybees as the first step in recovering the environment. A portion of all profits are donated to apiaries and honeybee advocates such as Detroit Hives and Urban Beekeeping Community. Sipany Royale, their original cocktail, features a four-year-old New York State rye whiskey with a touch of local wildflower honey and real lemon juice. It is carbonated to perfection and ideal for any occasion. Sipany is available for nationwide delivery at shopsipany.com. That's shop, S-I-P-O-N-E-Y.com. Sipany was conceptualized by my friends Joey Mintz and Amanda Victoria when they were six months pregnant with their daughter. Together, they set out to create a product that is delicious, high quality, and community-driven around giving back to beekeepers and as an homage to their hometown of New York City by using all locally sourced ingredients. Use code SIPWITHJJ, S-I-P with JJ, for 15% off at shopsipony.com. That's shop, S-I-P-O-N-E-Y.com. Welcome, welcome to the very first episode of The Old Man and the Three with J.J. Reddick and Tommy Alter, presented by Cash App. Tommy, this is our new endeavor. This is our new thing. We're here. <laughs> 2020 just continues to amaze. Yes. We want to thank all of the listeners for the past several months. Your engagement on social has been amazing. We love being able to interact with you. So uh, continue to do that on social. Go follow The Old Man and the Three on Twitter and Instagram. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your pods. Give us five stars. If you like the show, if you don't like the show, give us five stars as well. Tommy, let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of our departure and what we're trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, you start. First of all, so my contract with The Ringer ran until August 1st, and I think originally the thinking behind that was going to be that it would just sort of take me and you and the show through the NBA Finals, free agency, the draft, uh, and then we'd sort of reassess things in the middle of the summer. And then COVID happened, and it just so happened that August 1st now is in the middle of of this NBA bubble. Yep. So the timing is a little fortuitous on our part because we get to give you, the listener, behind-the-scenes access, and, and we get to talk about all the things happening in the bubble. Our guests, of course, uh, right now are going to be a lot of NBA players like Damian Lillard uh, who are going to give you, you know, his experiences in the bubble. And we started having this conversation about doing our own podcast and starting a company and really just owning the podcast a few months ago. Ownership really is the key. And I think you can probably dive into that a little bit more, but that is a thing. I mean, I know people across the board in this industry are talking about it. And I think it's a sort of crucial next iteration of this industry. For sure. So just to give you guys a, just a little bit of info, we renamed the podcast because we did not own the podcast with The Ringer, nor did I own the podcast with 
Yahoo or <laughs> uninterrupted. So this is a whole new RSS feed, a whole new show. We will be giving you a lot of what we we gave you before, which is just a bit behind the scenes look at the NBA, candid conversations with people we know in different industries. And the show is going to function a lot of the ways that the JJ Reddick podcast functioned, except we own it. It's ours. We own the name, we, we own the IP, and we started a company. And the hope, I think, you could talk about this a little bit more, but the hope and, and the goal is to develop and build out a podcast network over the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the reasons why people have always liked listening to you do this, no matter where you were doing it, is because you're an active participant in something that they are interested in doing a medium that they like. I know there have been a few other players who have launched shows after you, but you were the first one to do it. And I mean, I'm biased and I feel like our listeners are biased, but I think you're the best one at it right now. Thank you. And I think one of the things that we're thinking about, you know, both with guests and then also people we're going to work with are whether it's other athletes, maybe political people, people in the entertainment industry in specific fields, people that can sort of give a peek behind the curtain, you know, and can offer basically just like guidance in their own words in a way where the beauty of the podcast medium compared to, you know, film and television, for example, is the barrier to entry production wise is so minimal. I mean, (laughs) you're sitting in your hotel room in Orlando with a microphone and a recorder and a laptop and that's it. And we're going to be able to put this out tomorrow. And so when we're thinking about sort of who else to work with, and we have some ideas now, but I think the key is basically to get this show off the ground before we do too much. That sort of low barrier to entry is a thing which I think is going to be really helpful and is part of why this industry is growing so fast, you know, because we're not saying you're doing a TV show from the bubble. Right. You touched on something. I think what this show has always provided going back to 2016 and what other shows that we develop will provide is inside access. You said, you know, a peek behind the curtain, essentially. And that's what we're going to continue to do on this show. And as we develop other shows, that's what our goal is for those ideas. And it's fun because, you know, you mentioned the the listeners and sort of the engagement, and, and this is obviously going to continue, but, you know, we're growing this with our audience. You know, we're going to be doing rankings and we're eventually going to incorporate a mailbag segment, I think, into the show. And it's going to be really cool to just take listener suggestions and basically put it into the show. You know, we don't have the beauty of the situation right now is like, we're the boss. We don't have any execs being like, no, you can't do that. Like, we're giving you notes. You have to make the show this amount of time. You can't talk about this. You can't have this person on. And so if someone sends some like weird ass idea in and we're both like, that sounds cool. We're just going to do it. That's it. A few things I just want to mention real quick. Number one, because a lot of people asked me this yesterday on social media, my relationship and your relationship with Bill and The Ringer is great. We talked with Bill through this process. Bill and I remain friends. Yep. Uh, nothing but good things to say about everyone at The Ringer. Again, this came down to me <laughs> having recorded 100 episodes of a podcast that I did not own, wanting to own said podcast. And, and obviously, you started with me in, back in January, 
and we wanted to own this. And I feel like not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but there will be, you know, ringer people on this show. You will be doing stuff on different ringer shows. Like there's going to be a lot of crossover there in the near future. But the ringer has Bill and Jeff and the rest of the crew there have built like an amazing platform. Amazing. Um, which I've been a part of, you know, and I and that is continuing. And so there's going to be a ton of crossover. This is straight up just the for you specifically, an ownership thing. Yes, and while we were going through this process, we were looking for a partner, and the partner we landed on, the partner we chose is Cadence 13, uh, which is a great podcast company. They do a ton of shows. They help with a ton of shows. They're essentially providing our back-end support. I'm really excited to work with their team. Most of their team, actually, I worked with uh, when I was doing the podcast with Yahoo!, so we're very familiar with everyone from sales, from production. Uh, so I think this is going to be a, a really seamless transition. And I also want to mention just Cash App. You know, They will be the presenting sponsor for the foreseeable future and just want to thank them for doing that. I think one thing I found funny over the last couple of weeks, what the listeners may not realize is how engaged you are in every part of this process. <laughs> There's no execs. There's no suits. JJ is on the phone with every single lawyer, every single person that he has to deal with with this show. And it's not like him being a control freak, like I need to know everything. It's just straight up like there's nobody else. <laughs> right. There's no one else to do it. Right. And so, and so he's been very engaged. It's been a strange um, bubble experience. I would say a one-of-one bubble experience for sure. Yeah, we, we started this process. I, I can't remember when we first talked to Bill about this. We started the process shortly after that. So this was sometime mid to late June. So the last five to six weeks have been very busy for a number of reasons. And even within the bubble, you know, we were still making decisions while we were in the bubble, knowing that we were up against this August 1st deadline with the end of the ringer contract so the last few weeks we've gotten a lot done thank you for your help and support and your friendship and really excited to do this thing with you it's going to be awesome let's get to dame because we got a ton of stuff from him this is a great conversation i tell him this but for the listener he's one of my favorite players he carries himself so well both on and off the court We've had guests on the show before talk about his leadership. From a distance, he's one of my favorite leaders in the NBA. He's one of my favorite players. And truthfully, he might be one of my favorite rappers. Yeah. I mean, his... <laughs> he's just an amazing... We're going to get to this in the show. He's an amazing personality on and off the court. And his story is great. Yeah. We're going to get to his story and how he ended up being a franchise player with his own signature shoe, just an absolute superstar. Let's get to our conversation with Portland Trailblazer guard, Damian Lillard. All right, let's welcome in the very first guest of the Old Man and the Three podcast, uh, someone that I've hoped to get on the podcast for a long time, Damian Lillard. Thanks for joining us. For sure, bro. Appreciate you having me. For sure. I literally just got back to my hotel we we just beat Memphis, which is obviously good for us. I feel like we might have done you guys a favor as well. <laughs> yeah, we needed that, bro. <laughs> we needed that. We needed that for sure. What are, what are your early impressions of just playing in the bubble? I'm actually shocked at how competitive and how how good the games have actually been. Like the quality of play is really high. 
No, it is. Um, when it was first brought to my attention, like, you know, they're going to have a bubble and, you know, kind of giving us the whole layout. I was like, man, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if dude's going to show up interested, who's going to be in shape. Like, what is it going to be like? You know, no fans. So I've been surprised with, you know, how competitive it's been, you know, the quality of the games. But I think it makes perfect sense, though, because, I mean, nobody want to, you know, train for two and a half months and, you know, miss out on your whole summer and then come here and basically lay an egg or waste your time. You know what I'm saying? So um, people put time into this. So they they coming out and you can tell people like, man, we here to we here to get something done. And I think that's why it's uh, that's a part of why it's such high quality games. I think the most impressive thing has just been shot making. Like the Jaron Jackson shot against San Antonio yesterday from the corner. From the corner yeah. Mellows two threes the other night down the stretch. Yeah. You in the second half yesterday. Um, the, the, the very first night, our game against Utah and then the, the, the Clippers-Lakers game. I mean, it's just the amount of like clutch shot making has been, yeah. been insane. Take me through a situation like yesterday when you're, you're playing against Boston and you get hot and hit five threes and a half. What's going through your mind? Like when I actually started making the shots or like leading up to that? Both. I mean, so in the first half, I mean, they was we we didn't really make it hard for them at all. So they was getting high high quality shots the whole half. And then the possessions that we did, you know, get into them or make them take a tough shot, they had already gotten comfortable and seen the ball go in. So it it was like it was almost deflating. It was like we finally picking it up and we competing and trying harder. And now they're still making these shots. Um, but in the huddle, you know, our message was just, you know, keep keep making them work and it'll come back in our favor. You know, they're not going to keep making tough shots for a, a full game. Um, and then we started in the second half and I was like, man, let me take Tatum. He had like 20 something in the, the first half. And I was like, let me take Tatum. And I felt like that was how I got myself going, because I was like, I'm just going to go ahead and, and take this challenge. He already going. Let me try to let me try to take him out. You know, let me try to change change the game this way because I wasn't making shots. And once I start feeling good about that affecting the game that way, I was like, you know, maybe that could could get something going. We started to get some stops, and I mean, you know, as a shooter, all it takes is to see one go in. And I saw one go in. I was feeling good about what I was doing defensively, and it was just like, man. It's, it's a game of runs, and it's our time to make a run. You know, we, we took our lumps in the first half. Things didn't go in our favor, but it's a it's a 48-minute game. Um, and I think our team just did a great job of, of continuing to fight. Uh, you know, I think yesterday especially, it was so many games, or the day before, where it was just like teams came out, got down 15, and just said, you know, whatever, and end up being 20-point games. So I, I was happy that we didn't give in to that. But I think it was just our mentality to to keep fighting. And, um, you know, we changed the game on the defensive end, stopped having to play against a half-court set defense, and, you know, it turned around for us. We were one of those teams on Saturday that, that, <laughs> that got down 15. Well, we got down by like 40-something. I wanted to just interject about something Dame said about 
sort of changing the complexion of the game by doing something other than scoring or do, doing something other than shooting. I had an assistant coach in uh, in L.A. with the Clippers, J.P. Clark. Whenever I, you know, it wasn't going for me offensively, he was like, dive on the floor for loose ball, take a charge. Like, that's how you get yourself going. And to your point, sometimes it just might take a technical free throw or like a three, you know, a defensive three second, just seeing the ball go through the hoop, uh, that can get you going. Yeah. How often do you do that, Dame, where you will come out of halftime and be like, I'm going to switch up a defensive assignment to try to get yourself going? I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I do it all the time. That was just a situation where I was like, he got 20-something already. It's not something that, you know, somebody watching the game would expect me to do, but, like, this is not a typical situation. Us being here is is not a typical situation. We only have eight games. It's not like it's going to be 82 games or, or a back-to-back coming up or something like that. It's like this is all we have. So I just came out and I was like, that's what I decided to do in that moment. But sometimes I might come out in the second half and it might be something as simple as I'm going to push the ball up the court on a make or a miss. I'm just going I'm just going to try to pick up our pace or I'm going to pick up the point guard at half court. I mean, it's just small stuff like that that I try to do just to change the way the game is going and, and try to get our team going in some way. And yesterday it was just, you know, the, the person that's scoring a lot of points for them that has them going. I'm going to try to make his life a little bit harder and get our team going that way. Do you feel like you guys have missed Mo Harkless and Al Farouk Amino this year, especially on the defensive end? Yeah, for, I think we missed them a lot because we, I think it was kind of taken for granted how, how much they did for us, you know, not just them being able to guard pretty much one through five, but the defensive rebounding and the offensive rebounding. I mean, they, you know, for a long time, we a lot of our success on the offensive end wasn't just come down and score. It was getting second and third opportunities. And a lot of times that was them. All the deflections, well, a lot of times that was them. So if I get tired or, you know, I'm scoring and, you know, they want me to, to get off the ball for a little bit, Mo would take the ball and him and Chief would be switching, you know. So I think we really felt, we really felt, you know, that absence with those two guys, with, with Nurk and Zach being out as well. Um, I think having them back is kind of like, all right, we can manage. But, you know, with Nurk and Zach being out, it was like, man, if we had Chief and Mo, this would, this would go way better right now. But um, it definitely hurt not having those two around, man. They did a lot and didn't get enough credit for it. Yeah, we played you guys in 2016 in the first round, and you guys ended up beating us. And – the series like changed when Mo just basically started picking CP up full court, yeah. and obviously Chris ended up getting hurt uh, in in game four. But do you believe in the hot hand theory? Just out of curiosity, do you believe that like, do you believe that players actually get in the zone? I do. You do just because I've experienced it. Players <laughs> like the reason I believe is because some games you just I mean I can have a good game. Like, I can go out, like, our game against Memphis, the first game here, I felt like I had a good game, but I, I wouldn't say I was in the zone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But I had a stretch this season where, like, I was just, like, in the zone. Like, I felt like I was I was scoring 50 points, and it wasn't hard at all. No, you, you had a six-game stretch where you averaged 49 a game. You had three games 
over 50, a 48-point game, a 47-point game, a 36-point game. And in those six games, you hit 49 threes. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like That's like, I feel like that's, that's a, a hot hand. Yeah, that's a hot like, hand. <laughs> like, bro, that it is. Like, I have games where I might hit five threes, and I'm like, I'm not in the zone. I just hit five threes. But in those games, I might hit eight, and I'm just like, every time I shot it, I was like, it's in, it's in. And then it carried on to the next game. So I think it's – I definitely believe in that. That's a real thing. I think in some weird, like, psychological book, I think there was a book called Flow or something like that. And in productivity, it's called, like, being in the flow. And I haven't done it at the level you have, obviously. <laughs> but <laughs> – Shit, you did that, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, Close, close. But I, those stretches of games – you're almost it's almost like an out of body experience cuz you're you're not really thinking it's it becomes so instinctual yep. and to your point like you really feel like you're not going to miss yep. and maybe you go 11 for 20 but those nine shots i swear to god they were going in they like was I, they going were, in. yeah they felt good so right. jj dame and i were talking about this before you got on dame how much of that do you think is the fans because what i was curious about down here is you know shooters getting hot and you're just playing basketball there's no distractions there's nothing there besides the game but with you you obviously feed off of that amazing crowd that you guys have in portland so how much of yeah. this is fan related i think for a shooter for a hot streak to happen like it's almost easier when there is fans because even when you're on the road it's going to be oohs and ahs like if you you can be lighting up somebody's home team, but it's like, if you're putting on a show, you're putting on a show. And that's going to kind of keep you going. I feel like here, you hit a shot and nobody says anything. There's no noise. There's nothing. It's just like, all right, you made a shot. Get back on defense. Whereas, say we playing in Portland and I hit two threes in a row and then the other team comes down and miss and we pushing it. The crowd is like, it's almost like, uh, like they just getting ready to explode for the next three. And that that keeps you going in my mind. I know I can I can feel that. Like, you know a timeout is coming. So Dave, um, you, you, you played you played a bunch against the Warriors, and I yeah. feel like those games in Oracle when Steph and Clay would get going, the crowd fed that energy so much. As much as the players did, it was like there was just a buzz in the building yep. every time those guys got the ball. If they hit a couple threes in a row, I mean, it it makes it feel worse than it is. Like, you could be <laughs> down by six. You yeah. can have an eight-point lead, and then they come down and hit four threes in a row. And it's like, okay, you know, we're down by four. We just called a timeout. It feel like you're down by 15 because it's just – the crowd is just kind of – they pushing it up. Like, it's going up in the building because they – the excitement and the player is getting confidence from that. I feel like that's just that's just how it goes. I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't want to um, change the scouting report on you, but when you see a five-man in drop coverage, are you saying to yourself, dead meat, like I've got an easy pull-up three? I, I get why teams do it at times, but I feel like teams have sold out so much some teams have sold out so much on having the five just drop all the way into the paint protect the and rim. protect the rim, right? And it allows p 
players like you, I said this the other day to uh, actually to Nate about Devin Booker. Like when you have someone who can operate in the pick and roll like that, it's really almost impossible to defend. If if I'm coming off a screen and the big is back, I'm shooting it every time. I'm shooting it every time because nobody's taking mid-range jumpers like that anymore. So I'm not going to keep going to the big. Like usually if I take a mid-range shot, it's like I'm attacking and then I end up right there and I don't have anywhere else to go. And I just create some space and I end up getting to that shot. But if the big is back, I'm raising up for three every time. During this hot streak, did any of the teams change their coverages? <laughs> when you were averaging 50, I feel like I watched, was Utah one of the teams? I feel like I watched that game and they were yeah, just in, in, against Utah. And they were just in drop coverage. And Gobert was back and they was telling them to get up, but it's like some bigs are so used to their job being to just be in a drop coverage that they, it's habit. I just heard the coaches like, get up, get up, get up. But like, I would be raising up to shoot. And, you know, they yelling at them, get up, you know? So, and then we played him a few, a few weeks later in Utah and he was back again. And I had like 40 something. So it was like, I don't, I drop coverage. I don't understand it, man. Especially when you're dealing with guards that can shoot. Chris and I used to always talk about this in LA. And as a guard, first of all, if I'm being guarded by a player, let's say two steps above the three-point line and the big stays in the paint, I'm just going to literally wait on the screen and the big sort of walks up into the screen and then it's just a one dribble pull up. Rudy Gobert actually does this better than anyone offensively. He'll, he'll, the Jazz bring the guard out all the way, way past the three-point line and he just walks right into the screen and then it's you know downhill, Donovan pull up, Joe Ingles three, whatever it may be. It just creates all sorts sorts of issues. Yeah, it does. And I see, and the thing about that is even when teams aren't in a drop coverage, I do that. Just to give myself more space to deal with whatever type of coverage they in. Like if the big is trying to if they're trying to be up on a screen and show or trap or whatever it is, I'm gonna be up high as possible until my big sprint into the screen. And I'm trying to get downhill so I can have more space to make it a foot race between me and whoever this big is. Because I know they're trying to trap me or um, make me get rid of the ball. So <clears throat> even when they're not in the drop coverage, I'm like, I'm trying to play from higher up. And especially because I know I can shoot from out there. So, I mean, I think it goes for both if they're in a drop coverage or if they're trying to be up. What did you learn from the Pelican series a couple years ago? That, that seemed like that was a big moment for you guys. You guys finally had a high seed. You were the three seed that year and, and you got swept. Yeah. And, it, and the way they guarded you was, was a little different. Yeah, it was. I, that was the, I mean, when we played you guys in the playoffs, you guys like did the same thing. It just, it just wasn't as aggressive. Like it was like in moments I had space and I could like get stuff done against y'all. Um, but New Orleans, it was like, sometimes it wouldn't even be a pick and roll. I would just be dribbling to half court and they would just like run at me. And then the, uh, the person on the weak side would just run over like and take away the first pass. And I, I was being caught off guard. And now like when, when that was happening, I was just like, man, I was trying to figure it out on the fly. Like, dang, I wasn't expecting this during the season. When we played them, I was having big games. They just kind of, they shocked me. 
and after the first game, the second game, I was just, you know, I had a hard time with it. But then when I watched the series again, I just, you know, I put myself through it. Like, man, I don't even want to watch this, but I got I just got to see, like, what could I have done now that it's over with? I can look at it and be like, if I see this again. Um, and I think that was when I realized that I was going to have to start playing like a, um, a smarter game, um, just not being as predictable. Like, I don't think I play a predictable game, but at that time it was like, I felt like they knew it, it was too easy for them. Um, yeah. Did, did Drew guard you that series? Like I'm saying, yeah, he was, was it, yeah. He guarded Who's, me. He's, to me, he's the best defender in the league. Like out of the guards, I think he's the best defender. And even after that series, everybody was like, man, Drew Holiday did his out. And I was like, after the series, I was like, he had he did a great job. Like he's a great <laughs> defender. But I was like, they just trapped the hell out of me and blitzed me with two people the whole time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So say it with some context. You know, we got our pride as players. Like sure. You know, sure. Don't act like I just got <laughs> don't act like I was just out here on the island. He has some, you know, he he but did a great job. I don't, I love Drew. We were we were in the middle of the game against Utah the other day. I think we were at free throw line or something, and Joe Ingles turned to both of us and was like, yo, you're the best defender in the league. Like he just the the way he stays in front of guys. He is, bro. <laughs> he he'll full on reach, miss the ball, and somehow get back in front of the ball. It's unbelievable. No, he is. He is, bro. I don't know if you saw this, but we had Pat Beverly on a recent podcast, and he said the toughest matchup for him is you. And you, you're saying Drew is the toughest guy that guards you. Is there Drew anybody? Drew is the best defender in the league as a guard. Yes. Do you have rivalries? Like, is there anyone that you you get up for more than than the average guy at your position? Mm, not really. Is this Damien saying I'm not going to admit it, or is this being truthful? <laughs> no, I'm willing to engage with anybody. Yeah, like I don't have I don't have a problem with nobody, but I'm willing to. It's going it is what it is with anybody on any night, you know? Yeah. But it's not like a personal I don't feel like I got a personal rivalry. I feel like every time I play against Russ is something. Like it's I feel like it's always something, but I wouldn't even say it's a rivalry. I think it's a rivalry to everyone else. You know what I'm saying? Like because I've played sometimes when I've played against Pat Beverly, like for a few years, like we used to get double texts all the time. And people used to be like, oh, Damon, Pat. But, like, now that's kind of just like, you know, he he's a competitor. And I'm, like, I engage in that type of competitiveness. Like, I'm going to go – I'm going to go get it just like – if somebody come after me, I'm going to come after you back. I'm not going to shy away. So, I mean, that's just what it is. I got – I'm going to have the, the same energy towards everybody. Were you like this your rookie year? Or did you? Is this learned behavior for you? No, I, I think I was just, I was the same from the jump. I just think I got better. Yeah, that was it. Like when I first came in the league, I was looking at it like I'm playing against Chris Paul. I'm playing against this dude, and it wasn't like I was like looking up to them. I was just looking at them like this is my first year in the league, so it's gonna be what it's gonna be. Now I'm going into these matchups expecting to outplay them. It's funny because we were looking, JJ and I were looking at your rookie year numbers earlier. You came out with a bang. I mean, there was no, from the outside looking in, there didn't seem to be very many growing pains. Yeah. I mean, 
It was. It just did. I, I feel like, you know, if you watch him playing for another team and it's, it's not something you follow in every single game, you're just seeing the highlights and you're seeing, you know, in the game stats and stuff like that. It might come off one way, but when you directly involved, it's like it was a lot that I needed to be better at and learn that, you know, they're not going to talk about on TV or in the media. They're going, you know how it is. What was what was the biggest thing for you then from like your rookie year, second year and moving forward? What was the what was sort of the biggest lessons you learned? Um, I think the biggest thing for me was. Just like learning the terminology simple stuff like away rub wedge roll 977 or pick pick or just all those little all the terminology and stuff like that because when you first come in the league the people who are usually playing like the high minutes and on the court a long time they vets they've been in the league they've been around they know this stuff and here i am a rookie and i'm on the court the same amount of minutes as like you like we all out here, I'm playing all these minutes and I'm like a chicken with my head cut off because I'm out here because of my ability, but I don't really know <laughs> what's coming. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And now I had um, our assistant coach at the time who was there He with my first seven years, David Vanderpool. He would sit me down and be like, you know, what does this mean? If they say um, fist up, 35 what did like he would like I was almost like in school with him he would be like what do you think this mean what does this mean and this is all like the summer after my rookie year where he just like what is this and he just kind of tested me about every single thing as far as like the terminology and what this team likes to do what this player like to do and by the time my second season came like I was having fun with it like it, it started to get fun to me to like hear a point guard bringing the ball up and they like, hey, uh, why this or double away or whatever they were saying. And I knew what and I would look and I'd be like, OK, JJ's over here in the corner and he going to be sprinting out of the corner because he like running to the right and just fading, like just floating to the right and just shooting at you. Like if somebody if I hear double away or something like that, I would just look for the corner, whoever the shooter is, they about to. Like, and I would be able to figure it out. And I started to, I fell in love with that part of, of everything, just like being able to figure out everything. And then after that, it was watching film, not to see what I did good, but watching film to see like what I could take advantage of. And I fit, once I started doing that, I think that's when I started, that's when I really took off. When I started, even when I watch games on TV now, I just notice every little thing that I can take advantage of to, that don't take no speed. It don't take no talent or nothing. It's just like, how can I, and now it makes more sense to me how Chris Paul is so, has been so good for so long. Cause all he do is manipulate everything to take advantage of something that he saw. And he called his play because he knows this team is going to react like this. And once I started figuring that stuff out, I was like, <laughs> I, I got it. <laughs> I got it. You got the cheat code. So for the, out. for the listener, pick, pick, away, 77, fist up, 35. These are all offensive actions. I could, I mean, I know what they all are. Away is a pin down. Uh, yeah. 77 and pick, pick are double drags. 
Yeah. Uh, fist up 35 is a high pick and roll between the th- three, three man and the five man. There's only so many things that you can call the five actions in the NBA that we run. I mean, we, we really only run five actions. Having been Chris's teammate, I will say that dude tries to manipulate every play. Like he is looking for a competitive edge on every single play. Not just with your defense or your offense, with the referees, <laughs> with everything. He is like, and I'm telling you, like that type of stuff is, once you start figuring that stuff out, man, the game gets so much easier. And it seems so much slower when you, when you watch teams and you recognize their plays. You recognize the actions and you know players' tendencies. Because when you watch film, like when I watch film on other teams now, and I'll see like three or four games, and players do the exact same thing every game. The exact same thing. And they don't change it. It's just a matter of did I make or miss tonight? Yeah. Or did it work on this team or did it not work as well? They do the same thing. And when you notice that, it make it, it makes sense why somebody that's, you know, Tony Allen can be, 30, whatever, and still be a great defender. And how Chris Paul can be his age and be a great point guard, you know? Who else in the league do you guys think is like that, like is on that level, that maybe aren't like the stars, but just from a, from a mental standpoint, have it on lock? I mean, LeBron, obviously, but he's obviously a star. I mean, LeBron is a star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, that's not a star. Well, oh, just man. that like people, people at home wouldn't necessarily know is sort of operating like this. I mean, I, people may not realize it. I think Jimmy Butler operates like this. Yeah, Jimmy Butler. Jimmy thinks the game. He really thinks the game. Ricky Rubio is another guy that I think really thinks the game. Ricky is, I think, one of the smartest defenders in the NBA. Yeah, he, Dame, he you talk about like knowing a scouting report and knowing a play call. <laughs> we used to code our play calls with the Clippers, and he had, he would figure that stuff out. Right. I would, I would try. Yeah, those those guys would probably be the guys that, off the top of my head, just are really, I mean, really intelligent guys. This, I think Rondo is is well known, and people know. But Rondo is more than like Rondo is like on top of that shit. Like, like he's one of the best at it. I've that I've that I've played against. Rondo is like him. Kyle Lowry. Yeah, Kyle's Rubio good. Always a good one. I've, this is part of the problem, though. Not, I don't want to sound like an old man, but this is part of the problem with some of the young guys now is that they don't actually watch basketball. Yeah. Do you watch basketball just about every day? Bro, I watch. If we don't play, I go home and I watch every game on League Pass. Every game. Same. Every game. I don't miss a game, bro. Like, I watch every game. I'll go home and watch the Pistons against Atlanta with six games left in the season, bro. <laughs> like I, I, I watch yeah. every game. I just that's just what I that's what I enjoy. That's what I love to do, man. I feel like there's an accumulation of knowledge that happens. It's the same way that we we work on our skills. Um, there's an accumulation of skills as you become older. Maybe you lose a little bit of athleticism, but if you've accumulated yeah. enough knowledge and you've accumulated enough skills, then you can just keep hooping at a high level. And I think CP probably is the the, the best example of that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's especially when you when you think about what you just said, like a lot of young players now, 
they play video games and don't watch basketball. You know, they they're not as obsessed with just the game in general as people, you know, once were. Like, if you think about when you was 18, 19, like how much you just loved basketball and that was like what you wanted to do. Like, if I play a video game, I'm going to play a basketball game. <laughs> like, I'm going to play 2K. I'm not about to be playing Call of Duty. Like, I'm going to be playing 2K. Like, I just want to watch Hoop. I go on YouTube and watch Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. And I, like, I just love Hoop. So the way I see it is, like, because, that like, a, a younger generation is less interested or loves the game less, I feel like you can you can play the game longer now because of that level of knowledge and interest in the game. You know, what you're able to do without the the athleticism or the speed or whatever you once had, you can last because you can manipulate you can manipulate these dudes. You know what I'm saying? I feel like it's it's a good thing. Cause I would be able I feel like I'll be able to play longer because once I ain't fast. And athletic no more. I'm still gonna be able to get done what I want to get done. Yeah, I mean, you just turned thirty, right? Yeah. Congrats on that. My existential crisis started at age thirty. So good luck, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, Bro, I'm, I'm gonna start lying about my age, man. I'm, I I just turned thirty six. So I do. Bro, I remember like, when you was actually at Duke, bro. You were what, like tw- twelve to fifteen? I hated Duke, bro. What? <laughs> Did you hate him? I was a bro. I was a I was a North Carolina. Oh, okay. Like, Did you hate me? You could be honest with me. I'm not. I'm not offended at all. No, I didn't, bro. I actually liked you, bro. Okay. All right. I've had some players at Duke that I like the players, but I was just like, yeah. Why do you go to Duke? <laughs> like, that's generally how it works in that rivalry. If you're a UNC fan, it's a it's a fair question. Did UNC recruit you at all? Man, I got the funniest. <laughs> They didn't, by the way. I got recruited <laughs> by all small schools, but uh, I'm I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, Matt Doherty. Yeah. So he was at SMU, and uh, <laughs> he was recruiting me when I was in high school. He started recruiting me, and um, when he went when I first met him, he was like, "Man, I love your game and your demeanor and all this stuff." And he was like, "If I was still at Carolina." I'll recruit you. <laughs> and I was like, damn. Too bad his ass ain't at Carolina no Because I would have accepted the hell out of that scholarship. No, nah, but that, I always thought that was funny, man. I don't actually know this story. How, how did you end up at Weber State? So I got to, I think it was after my junior year of high school. I wasn't getting recruited. And, um, we got on the circuit and we went to Vegas. And I remember the first the first game we got to Vegas at, like for that that summer after my junior year. Um, we played it. I forget who the guy was we played against, but that was the first time I played. And like high major coaches was at my game. It was like Washington, Clemson, Arizona. It was like a lot of coaches there that I recognized, like Lorenzo Romar. Like I was like, I know who these dudes are. And I just remember I had like 40. I was just killing. I was dunking. I was just hitting deep threes. We beat them. We won the game. And uh, after the game, I was like, 
getting interviewed. I never got interviewed. Like I didn't have no write-ups. I didn't have nothing. So I was like, shit, I might be going to North Carolina now. So, so after that, like I went on, I had this big tournament. Um, but I still, I still wasn't like getting recruited by none of those schools. And then I remember, um, like the rest of the tournament was cool. I still didn't start getting recruited. And then our next tournament, we had like a 9 a.m. game and there was one coach there and it was my coach from Weber State. And I had a I had another big game. And right after the game, he offered me a scholarship. Like as soon as we left the, the gym and went back to the hotel, my AAU coach was like, man, Weber State offered you a scholarship. And uh, shit, I, that was the first school to, to offer me a scholarship. So I had like, from that time to the end of the summer, I ended up having like 25 offers all from like Portland State, University of Portland, Montana, Montana State. I had a bunch of schools like that. But that that entire time that I was like, you know, getting all these scholarship offers, I had already been building up my relationship with the staff at Weber. And then uh, toward the end, like toward the end of the summer, I had a couple of schools um, try to tell me to reclassify like they wanted me to come back and graduate in 2009 instead of 2008 because I was at I was gonna graduate when I was 17 I graduated high school early so my dad was like, like nah like <laughs> you ain't reclassifying nothing you, <laughs> you gonna finish school this year so I was like man I I'm just gonna go where they want me so I went to Weber and that was that man was it a little bit of a, a shock being in Ogden Utah was it an adjustment? Honestly, it wasn't. I didn't. So I, I liked it as soon as I got there. Yeah. When I got there, like just the freedom, had like being on my own time, like having to learn how to like manage my own time. I felt like I was in a safer place. Like I grew up in a tough place, bro. Like I felt I felt comfortable. I felt like I was around people that that cared about me, and that was all I needed. You know, so. I got to school and it was like I I got there feeling like I could I could survive anywhere. So I mean it was cool. It was I didn't feel like no shock. It was everybody was like, Oh, it's a Mormon state and all this and when I got there it was cool. It wasn't bad at all. Did you feel like basketball wise your development there is sort of responsible for where you are now? Yeah, I think so. When I got there I mean, I was I, when I got there my freshman year, I was coming off the bench for like the first couple of weeks and they had me playing shooting guard. Our point guard was like five, six, and he was just a scorer, like just filling it up. Um, and then we got like a couple of weeks into the season. And the way I played was, you know, I, I played the same then as I do now. Like I just made the right play. I played simple and I would just score in spurts. And um our point guard at the time was just scoring. He wasn't passing the ball. So basically they switched us. They put me in the starting lineup at point guard and made him the shooting guard. And he ended up being MVP. And like, we ended up finding out that I was really a point guard. And then my, one of my, one of our assistants who I still train with to this day, um, Phil Beckner, he just, he was like, man, he was just always be on my case. Like, you're not good enough. You don't shoot good enough. You can't go right. You can't do this. You can't do that. And we just started working out before class. And then we would shoot, do shooting workouts after practice. He'd be making me get 
the ice bath, making sure I went to sleep. How many hours of sleep did you get? What you eat for breakfast? You hydrated. Don't be late for class. He just started getting on my case about every little thing. Not If I didn't win a sprint in practice, he was on my case. If I didn't shoot 100 free throws after practice, he was on my case. If I didn't work out after class, it was just like, so I just started, like, my habits started to change. I started to, to go to sleep earlier. I stopped. I wasn't hanging out. I was working out, like, constantly, constantly. I just kind of – and then once I started to get in games, I started to feel the difference in myself. Like, I was just making shots in the game. I was just – I wasn't missing. Nobody could stop me. I was in shape. Like, I was – it made me get more committed just to the game. And – um Every year, we just took it to a different level. After my, I say, I think it was my sophomore year, I was MVP my sophomore year. And um, I just remember he was showing me like hundreds and hundreds of emails of him begging Adidas to invite me to their camp, Adidas Nations. And um, I remember on my birthday, I found out that they, somebody couldn't come, they let me come. And I went to camp in Chicago, and it was like all the NBA Adidas athletes was there. Um, D Rose. Eric Gordon, Corey Brewer, like all the dudes, Josh Smith that was with Adidas was there playing pickup. I was playing with all the top players in the country. I went back to school after that, and I, that was when I stopped going home in the summer. Like I would just stay at school and train the whole summer. I didn't go home to see my family or none of that. And then I would go train in the summer in Utah. School would start, then I would train in the summer. I stayed, and I never went home until I, got, until I left school and got drafted. And that was like, that was the change right there. It's amazing. In, in listening uh, to you talk, so many times when I read something about you or even like talking to someone like Pat Connaughton about you, you know, the word loyalty always comes up. And yeah. you can see that you just like live that out in your life and everything that you do. It's actually pretty wild. Yeah, man. I don't, I mean, I feel like the, the route... <laughs> the route that I had to get here makes it easy for me to just stay that way. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I didn't, when I committed to Weber state, it was time for me to go to school. And I was just like, I, I was like, I don't know if I really want to go to Utah. So I told my dad, like, man, I think I'd rather just go to St. Mary's and just stay at home. My dad was like, you told them you're going, you're going. And that was the end of the discussion. This, after my second year at Weber, I was MVP when I told you I went to Adidas and all that. A couple of schools started trying to go around my school to get me to transfer, a few bigger schools. And I never really wanted to do it, but I mentioned it to my dad. And he'd be like, no, we'd like, that's out. Give them my phone number. Like, we're not doing that. If an agent, if any agents call you while you're in school and all that, give them my number. Like, my dad. I think it's like the route in my upbringing, man. You don't, anything other than loyalty ain't worth it, you know? If it causes you to go against who you are or what you believe or, you know, what you're about, then it ain't worth it. Did you feel like basketball-wise you had a chip on your shoulder because you weren't getting recruited as much and you were someone who, you, you sort of didn't have the flashy basketball life until you got drafted? I think that, yeah, I would definitely say I had always had a chip on my shoulder. And it, 
I mean, it wasn't, I wouldn't even say it was just because I wasn't getting a scholarship. It was like, even in Oakland, we had like guys that were my age that was, you know, from the Bay Area that I thought I was better than. And they was going to, you know, Arizona and Arizona State and all these big schools. And I'm like, if they from the same place as I am, and I think I'm better than them. Why are they going to these schools? And I ain't heard nothing from these schools. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I think that was the beginning of that. You know, it wasn't even about, at that point, it wasn't even about, you know, just a, a, the scholarship itself. It was like, how is this, how is this possible? Like, what am I doing wrong? So. Did you, did you ever think that it would be this good, that you would be this good? Like where you would have a, a signature shoe, a super max, a franchise Bro. player, first team all NBA. I mean, it's wild. It's, it, the journey is I, wild. It's wild, man, because I'm a, I'm a person that I have no self-doubt. I don't doubt myself. That If it's one thing I know I can stand on is I know that I have real confidence, like even in a bad moment or good moments, I know I got real confidence and I know I don't doubt myself. And I didn't think this is not what I saw happening, bro. Like, I can like when I was when I entered the draft, and even when I was working out for the draft with um, before I left school. So I finished the school year before I left. Like I entered the draft, but I was still like going to class because <laughs> this is how much I didn't believe this was like a real thing. Like I was like, I know I'm entering the draft, but like I might have to go make a team. You know, like. So I I signed with my agent, and my agent is like, you're going to be a top 15 pick, and you're going to get a shoe deal, and, you know, you're going to do this. and you're gonna, He's kind of just telling me all these things that he sees for me happening, which all happened. Like, everything happened. But at the time, I was just like, that ain't what I – that's not what I came from, you know? So I just can't wrap my head around the fact that he's telling me all this stuff is going to happen. And then I'm training with my, my coach and he's telling me, damn, you gotta, you gotta be the hardest worker and you gotta be coachable and you gotta listen. And when you get to the NBA, you might be in the G league for a few months and you might be on the bench for two years. Like this is the mentality that I'm coming in with. So like, even after I got picked sixth in a draft, you know, my agent is like, all right, you about to get a, you know, a few million dollars from Adidas. And they saying, you know, depending on how it go, you can get a signature shoe. And like, they saying all this stuff and I'm going into training camp. Like I literally went into training camp. Like it's possible that I, I'm not going to play. <laughs> like, cause this is how clueless I am about this whole process. Like I had no idea. So, I mean, that's how it was, man. Like, I didn't know. I made a list the other day with a few of my teammates. This is prior to preparing for this podcast, but I thought of this today. So when I think of like, I don't want to leave anybody out, but like if we're talking about, let's say the top like 15 guys in the league, I'm just in no particular order here. This is a no order. So like Anthony Davis, Paul George, a healthy Steph, uh, you, Luca. Joel Embiid, Jokic, Jimmy Butler, Siakam, Westbrook, LeBron, a healthy Kevin, Kevin Durant. Durant. 
Harden, Giannis, Kawhi. Like that's pretty much. I mean, you can throw like CP, Tatum, Ben Simmons, Bi. Like, there's a whole nother tier of guys. But like, for for like, that's probably a solid top fifteen. And like, I was looking at this list today, and really, there's only like five guys on the list that were like surefire guys. So many of the best players in our sport have stories. I mean, everybody's stories is a little different, but have stories that are eerily similar to your stories, either being under-recruited or being a second-round pick or, you know, in Joel's case, not playing basketball till he was 15. Do you think that there's a – it's a detriment to be sort of called a great player and to be building a brand when you're that young at 16 or 17? Is is it is, Does that set you up for some sort of – uh failure in in the long term i definitely think that's a strong possibility um which is why i got so much respect for lebron james but i think when you have all these you know young athletes and people telling them are you the best in the world and you're going to make it to the nba and you're going like why why would they have any reason to work hard or why would they have any reason to listen to a damn coach or you know, why would they take instruction from anybody? You know, why would they feel like they got to do anything different if everything has always been laid out for them? Red carpet, you know what I'm saying? Um, so I think it's definitely a setup for failure, you know, unless you are the LeBron James, you know what I'm saying? Like, look at Lenny Cook. And he didn't even have it like these kids have it right now. Like, these kids got millions of followers. They're getting free shoes. They getting everything that a professional athlete would get except money. And they probably getting some some money, but not the kind of money we make. But I, I think it is something to be said about like people who don't have somebody like we don't have our whole family banking on us making it to the NBA since we kids and people wanting to be attached to us because of what we are going to become. You know, like Paul George, Fresno State. Kawhi, San Diego State, me, Weber State, Steph Davidson, Ja Morant, Murray State, CJ McCollum, Lehigh. Who else? You name it. I mean, you just named all of them. Dr- Draymond, second round Draymond. pick. Yeah. Yeah, second round pick. Like I, it's there, I think there's two components to this. To your point, I do think there's a, a level of complacency that can set in at such a young age where they think they've accomplished something because they have X amount of followers on Twitter or they were named a McDonald's All-American. And then the second part of that is just the maturity issue. Like, I, I think I think telling someone they're great at that age, you're, you're bound to run into problems with that. Right. No, for, I, I agree, bro. And to your earlier point, like, what LeBron has done, to have that amount of attention on him since he was 15 or 16 years old, to never mess up. I mean, he's had no scandals. He's just been, he's given us, you know, 18, 19 years of uh, just greatness. 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 And it's like, he's done that. And he's the most hyped up. Like he had the most hype. He was on ESPN in high school. Like this dude was like the top of the top, you know? So he had more, he had more fans at his high school game than Trump had supporters in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm just saying, bro. Like, 
I had to throw uh, Tommy, I had to throw that you one in there. You had to do it. You had to, you had Dame, to drop Dame it. gave me that one. I had to throw it in there. <laughs> no, I, I ain't mad at that at all, man. You think they should get rid of the rankings for high school kids, like the rivals and all that stuff? I love the talent that I see in the high school players. I'm not a fan of none of this. I'm not a fan of none of the the things that the whole high school basketball represents right now. Just like the the videos, the being all in the camera during the games. I think it's it's just in a weird space, man. It's not it's not winning basketball. It's not even really basketball. I mean, it's I, not I, basketball. I, you watch it's some like of a, those games, and it's like people are running on the floor, and everything's about saying. like making making a move. It doesn't even matter sometimes if, if the shot goes in. Like it's like when we were growing up, it was like the and one mixtape. It's like what are what are we even watching here? Right, it's it's bad, man. And I think the other thing that I, that makes it sad is. You mentioned like it's a, a level of like complacency because you've been told like you're gonna make it and you're gonna be a draft pick and you know you don't you don't gotta earn nothing you don't feel like you gotta work for nothing and it's sad when it's time for them to make the NBA and they don't make it like either they don't get drafted or they get drafted and they just not they ain't built to survive where everybody's good you know what I'm saying like. You're talented and you, you know, you got all these gifts, but everybody got that. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you 20 years old or 19, whatever, and you think you about to come in here and just do whatever you want against Chris Paul, Pat Bev, like if you think you about to come in here and have your way, you're going to get embarrassed. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't nobody care about the hype. I don't care what your agent told you. I don't care what your your manager or whoever is the person that's been handling you since 10th grade, I don't care what they told you. Once you get up here, you got to do it. And if you're not prepared for it or mentally built for it, you're not going to make it. And that's where you see a lot of these dudes, they like, they, they get, they, they get here and they don't stick because they're not built to make it here, man. And a lot of that has to do with the, the culture of like high school basketball. Yeah. All right, Dame, we're going to do a quick uh, speed round, just like five or six questions. Um, yeah. You can answer one word questions or, or go in a long uh, you know, explanation. doesn't really matter. First question All I right. have is, what is it like seeing another NBA player wear your signature shoe? It's pretty cool. Like, I don't um, – it's one thing just to see, you know, players wearing the shoe. It's like, man, people – I feel like it's deeper. Like I would only wear somebody's shoe who I respect. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like a respect from players when I see them wear my shoe. But it's also like when I see a, a player who I respect wearing a shoe, I'm like, man, that's that's pretty cool. You know what I'm saying? I'm 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 guilty of wearing your shoe. I've I've done it for the last yes, year or so. <laughs> and I have to say it's the Dame Six specifically is like my favorite basketball shoe ever. Um, yeah, that's that's my best one so far, bro. Uh, Tommy, I'm going to ask one more for Dame. I feel like you and I were on the same page with something for a long time, and that was not posting workout videos. In fact, you at one point <laughs> a couple summers ago posted a mocking uh, a workout video of you doing yeah. ridiculous things. And then right before we get down to Orlando, there's all these shirtless videos of you working out. What the fuck yeah, changed, bro. man? What the, what changed? Oh. 
So what happened was I did a, a new uh, deal with um, this company. And uh, they was like, man, we got, we want, we need you to, to post some, uh, <laughs> some content, you know, posting some of your training. I was like, all right, cool. This ain't really my style, but I feel like, I feel like, you know, I proved that this ain't my style so I can, I can post my workouts. I mean, I, I just like to, I like to post my boxing because boxing, like outside of hoop, boxing is my favorite sport. But um, that, that's all that was. That was just some. I do think it's know. funny though, when we see these workout videos or these pickup videos in the summer and people are freaking out and they think it's somehow going to, and sometimes look, some guys, guys work really hard and they get better and they post a few videos and it translates. Right. But a lot of times that shit does not translate. I mean, because the stuff that they're doing is not realistic to who they are to their team, you know? So yeah, it is what it is, man. I've I never been a fan of that. And even the ones I did post, man, it was it was in the weight room. So I, <laughs> give me a pass, bro. I'll <laughs> give you a pass. I'll give you a pass. It was an ad. I get it now. I get it now. Dave, you, were, you filmed something for Space Jam, right? Yeah. All right. So if you could play any famous movie part, like that's already been done ever, what would it be? Man, I'd probably be Jesus Shuttlesworth. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a great answer. Give me, uh, give me th- one sentence to describe Mellow. One sentence to describe Mellow. Mellow is cool as a fan. Love it. To be a Hall of Famer and to be who he is as a basketball player, he's the coolest dude ever, man. Awesome. I didn't know what to expect when he came, but like everything that I heard about him, I don't understand how, how it could be, how, you know what I'm saying? How people could speak on his name the way they do now that I've been around him. And I think I'm a great judge of character too. So I, sure. I, don't, I don't get it. I got a chance to catch up with him in the player's lounge at the hotel after one of our preseason games. And it was like me, Lance Thomas, Kyle Quinn, Josh Hart, and Mello. And he's, I just, I love that dude, man. He was telling amazing stories about Phil Jackson. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, he cool. He cool. Real cool. What's the best meme you've seen about yourself? <laughs> That's a fun. That's a tough one. Um, I'm trying to remember what it said. I saw a couple of them from last year in the playoffs. I was going to say, there's a lot. When, uh, when everybody was like laying on top of me and I was looking up at the camera and there was one that said, like, um, when your friend is scared to ask his mom, can everybody spend a night and you go ask? And it was, it was something like that. And then it was another one that had something to do with, like, a girlfriend. But I can't think of what it is. I don't want to mess it up. But that's the best one. There was one around the end of Game of Thrones. Because you, you hit the shot against the, against the thunder right around the, mm-hmm. the last couple episodes of Game of Thrones. That it just broke. Dude, but you can't tell me that one because I'm I'm only on. All right, so I'm not saying anything. But once you finish the show, you'll get it. Just Google your name okay. in Game of Thrones. All right, I'm gonna look it up too. All right, let's get to the draft. So the draft with Dame is going to be based on basically our five. If we'd only listened to five rap or hip-hop albums for the rest of our life, what would those five albums be? And the reason is because you actually are 
a prolific rapper yourself. Yeah, In fact, really you you're you're, ra- you're you're really good, and I, I've read a bunch of stuff, and everybody's like, no, no, he's like a really good rapper, not just like a really good rapper for a basketball player. Um, no, I've been rapping. Yeah. See, it makes it even funnier that I never believed all this stuff. Like when they'd be telling me all this stuff about the NBA, because I really used to rap. <laughs> like that was I was gonna make a career out of it, bro. <laughs> like in college, I used to be dropping mixtapes and stuff like that. But like I really do music, like for real. Was the the sway thing you did at All Star Break? I think that was 2015. Was that like your sort of coming out party? Was that the first time you yeah. ever really publicly rapped? That was. I mean, I was already doing stuff on Instagram, but it was only in like 20 second, yeah, um, increments. Like it was just like Four Bar Friday, something I've been doing for like seven years. Yeah. So that was the first time like people heard me rap over a beat, like for that that amount of time. Did you get the did you get the beat beforehand? Did you write those lyrics out? I wrote those lyrics and they was just like, what beat you want to rap on? And I was like, Dead Presidents. Do you agree with the theory that every NBA player wants to be a rapper and every rapper wants to be an NBA player? I wouldn't say every, but I would say <laughs> a lot. <laughs> JJ used to want to be a rapper. I used to do really bad mixtapes uh in college we would record in my buddy's dorm room and somewhere on this planet earth on someone's computer hard drive there are like there's like 10 songs of me rapping we're gonna find them and it's it's gonna be the end (laughs) we're gonna have to pay money to find that man all right uh so five hip-hop albums that you get to listen to for the rest of your life these are the only five albums you, you you get we're going to do a snake draft here. So you're going to go first, then Tommy, then I'll get two picks. Tommy will get a pick. You'll get two picks, so on and so forth. Um, so with the number one pick, what are you taking? With the number one pick, I'm taking the miseducation of Lauren Hugh. Oof. Solid. It's a great album. I, I remember listening to it on all the lists that I looked up. It's legitimately top five, top ten on every Is it? greatest greatest of list. Yes. Everyone I looked up. Yeah. All right. My first pick, Illmatic. Interesting. Mm, Good pick. See, that's a very good pick. I've got like four Nas albums ready, ready to go. And that was one of them. All right. My first pick is Aquemini. Outcast. Yes, by Outcast. And then my second pick is actually my favorite Nas album, and that's It Was Written. It Was Written. You like It Was Written better than Illmatic? Yes, I do. I do. I feel. I feel like obviously, Omatic is considered to be a better album. It was his first album, his debut album, but I feel like it was written has has more bangers. All right, Tommy, you're next. All right, I'm going Outcast. I'm going Stanconia for a second. Stanconia, hey. I think it's amazing. I was thinking about this the other I'm day. I'm a big Outcast fan. Huge. Bro. You know, you know how they did. They did their four. Four of their five biggest albums before they were 26 years old. Yeah, I know. Which is crazy to think about. Like, they're still young guys. They just decided to stop doing it. They don't even like music no more. Yeah. They're doing it, at least. All right. You get, uh, Dame, you get two picks. My second pick, I'm going to do Reasonable Doubt. And my third pick, I'm going to do All Eyes on Me. I was wondering when it was coming. It had to. It had to go early. 
man. All eyes on me. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, fa- I mean, that's, that's the best Tupac album. Yeah. Yeah. So the question uh, I the question I have for both of you is, can Kanye be on this list? Because I'm about to pick the College Dropout as my third pick because I think it's a perfect album, but I'm so down on him right now. I don't even want to. I'm like I almost want to leave it out at a protest. Music is the music, man. If that's you, if that's what you enjoy, that's right. Go ahead and draft it. I'm I feel it. like we could separate Kanye, the creative genius, and Kanye the the human being a little bit you know yeah right all right i'm going right, so i'm going to drop college drop out that's three all right my next two then is, uh i'm gonna go uh blueprint and ready to die mm. solid what was that that was three and four for you three and four yep all right four i'm going uh good kid mad city nice that's one of my favorite albums too. So when I get two more picks, yep, you get your last two. So I got right now Miseducation and Lauren Hill, All Eyes on Me, and what was the other one I picked? Reasonable Doubt. Reasonable Doubt. So I'm gonna go with the Carter Three, Ugh. and uh, Doggy Style, Snoop Dogg. That's a solid list. What do you think? Have you been watching these verses? I think DMX. I almost went uh, flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood with one of my albums because I, as a kid, bro, I love I love DMX. I still do. The DMX but story is I, amazing. He's one of the most interesting artists ever. Ever. Him and I think him and Snoop had the best verses. Dame, do you remember your first rap album? Do you remember which what, what album it was? The first one that I bought. Yeah. The block is hot, Lil Wayne. Okay. I like that. And I bought I bought that and I bought um Steelmatic. Steelmatic is the one where he on the cover with the orange velour suit, right? Yeah. Yes. That was Steelmatic, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I bought that too. That was the first two albums I bought. All right, I got five. Yes. I'm going black album. Which I think black I think album, people I, love I think people album. sleep on a little bit. They for sure sleep on. I think on black it. album I was is to that yesterday. Yeah, black album is has eight or nine great songs on it i feel like i really want to pick stillmatic as my fifth <laughs> as my fifth one but i can't five stillmatic st- and stillmatic. <laughs> yeah no i can't it was written in stillmatic but i also can't have five albums and not have a t- tupac album so i'm gonna pick his machiavelli album that's what i'm gonna pick really yeah what game what do you think the best album of the last five years is but my favorite is probably um what year did To Pimp a Butterfly come out? That was, wasn't that earlier? That was before. I feel like that was 2012 yeah. or 13. Wasn't no, it? No, it wasn't. 2013 was Good Kid, Man City. I'm getting those two confused. You're let's look, right. Let's look it up. When was the Jake, when was Jake Holt's album? Which one? I think it was, was it Forest? AOD? No. Uh, Forest Hills Drive? Forest Hills Drive, yeah. I like Forest Hills Drive a lot. I like um, that one a lot. To Pimp a Butterfly was 2015. Boom, there you go. 2015, yeah. so that counts. That counts. To Pimp a Butterfly. All right. I feel feel like we all got really solid lists here. Uh, Dame, I can't thank you enough for the time. As I said at the open, huge fan. And uh, nothing but respect for you, how, how you play, how you carry yourself. And also as a rapper. I, I really mean Appreciate that. <laughs> I really mean that. Appreciate it, bro. Yeah. So, uh... 
Thank you so much, man. All right, fam. Y'all have a good one, man. Yeah, too, appreciate you, bro. All Later. Right.